0: but we'll showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to BFTExpo.com. That's blockchainfuturetechexpo.com. Thank you.
1: Hello and welcome to the future tech podcast. I'm Alan Thomas and today we have with us Bob O'Donnell. Founder of TechAnalysis Research. How you doing, Bob? I'm great. Alan, how are you? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm doing pretty well. So we're just gonna we're just gonna jump right in and ask you to tell us about TechAnalysis Research.
2: Sure. So uh, TechAnalysis Research is a technology uh, market research and consulting company. Um, I have uh, been a tech industry analyst. For uh, going on 19 years, I uh, worked originally at IDC, a big market research firm that some folks have heard of, uh, for a long time. And then about four and a half years ago, I started my own company, which is Technalysis Research. I work with uh, the big tech uh, firms that we've all, all the household names you've heard of, everybody from chip guys like Intel and Qualcomm and NVIDIA and ARM and uh, AMD um, to uh, systems companies like uh, Samsung and HP and Dell, Lenovo and uh, Sony, Fujitsu, Panasonic. Um, uh, then software companies like Microsoft and Citrix and um, other companies like National Instruments, Pivot Three, Plantronics, uh, Western Digital. So lots of the lots of the kind of companies that are uh, big players in the tech business are my clients, and I work with them. Uh, I provide uh, market research, I provide writing, I provide advice and consulting. Um, and uh, along the way, I get to follow all the cool and interesting things in tech, which makes my
1: job fun. And what, what are some of the coolest projects that you get to work on?
2: Uh, I get to—I mean, what I what I enjoy doing is uh, doing research on all the hottest topics. So part of my the way I approach uh, the business that I'm in is I do original research, um, and I do studies. Uh, market research studies on big topics. I just completed one on augmented reality and virtual reality. Uh, That was a survey of 1,000 U.S. consumers who own those devices. We can talk more a little bit about that later. Um, The study before that was on edge computing, more of an enterprise-focused study, looking at how companies are doing edge computing, what sorts of applications they're running, why they're running them. Did they move them from the cloud to the edge, and if so, why? And how are they doing the analytics? Um, prior to that, I did a study on uh, smart home and personal assistance. So things like the Amazon Echo and Google Home. Uh, prior to that, I did a study on enterprise IoT and the big trends in the enterprise. Um, and then I did a study on autonomous cars with consumer. Um, and then I uh, did something on the workplace of the future and and the tools and, and capabilities people are using. And then the next study I'm going to do is on AI applications in business, so basically all kind of the cool buzzword technologies that you hear about uh, out there are things that I uh, do and uh, it's a lot of fun it keeps me on top of things, and it keeps me engaged uh,
1: with these companies and so and so what would you say is the the ultimate mission for technologist research?
2: Well, the ultimate mission is to provide uh, guidance research advice um, To these big tech companies as they as they make their way through you know one of the things that happens when uh, that uh, as you know even very smart capable companies still get caught up in their own world view right Um, and so it helps to have an outside perspective and an opinion Uh, and a view from somebody who's talking to everybody in the business. So you don't get that skewed view. And oh, by the way, who's also talking to your ultimate customers, people who are buying these products. So my goal is to try and um, understand what those trends are and then provide research about it. In addition to the traditional research reports, of which I do several a year, uh, I write a lot. So I write for USA Today. I write for uh, Tech Um, Pinions. I've written stuff with Fast Company, with Engadget. Um, my stuff also gets republished on seeking Alpha, and uh, a bunch of things i 've done have been on recode uh, tech spot um, I self publish on LinkedIn as well so a lot of different places uh, where my stuff gets out there. I write stuff on a regular basis. Uh, I also like this, I do a podcast uh, I have a history I actually have my own call in talk show uh, call in tech talk show in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, to say i won an award for the best audio program in the country way back when uh, it was for 10 years on an abc affiliate and that gave me a lot of experience. Uh, and so we do a, a weekly uh, podcast for tech pinions that's a site that i also write for that also gets picked up uh often by seeking alpha so have a lot of media experience and then finally last thing i do uh, is i do a lot of work with the media So. I get called and quoted for articles uh, and everything from the Wall Street Journal and USA Today and CNET and all kinds of places, and I do a lot of uh, TV uh, interviews. So I'm a a fairly regular contributor to Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Technology, as well as the Bloomberg station overall, CNBC, uh, CNN, um, uh, and a number of uh, television networks around the world, uh, from Turkish TV to CGTN from China. couple of uh, Asia now uh, in, um, out of Singapore. So, you know, commentary on major trends uh, in the tech industry.
1: And so let's, uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the, the, AR, the AR-VR study that you mentioned. You say it was yeah. just recently completed?
2: Yeah, I just completed a study. It was, um, was fielded in March and published in, uh, in April, uh, where I surveyed 1,000 U.S. consumers who owned a device. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of people out there who've tried devices, but I specifically wanted to own. I actually started out with about 7,000 people, started out with people who are considered gamers because that's where, of course, a lot of people who are using VR come from. Uh, Of that 7,000, a couple hundred didn't qualify at all, but about 6,300, 6,200 started the initial survey. And then, um, about half of them had tried an AR or VR headset. Uh, and about a third of them actually owned one, but only a thousand of that group uh, qualified for the full survey. So we looked at what devices they owned um, and then we looked at what they liked and what they didn 't like and and a number of different things and and found a number of very interesting points, um, for example, um, probably no big surprise, but um, Samsung Gear v r and uh, sony playstation v r were some of the top Devices people actually owned. Um, of course, the Gear VR, a lot of people were given one <laughs> because if you bought a Samsung phone, uh, you got it. Um, and then, of course, the PlayStation VR, uh, associated with the PlayStation gaming console, was also a very popular item. Um, but I, I had data on over ten different devices, everything from Google Cardboard to the Lenovo Star Wars uh, Challenges device, um, uh, HTC Vive, uh, Oculus. Um, all those different devices uh, were part of the study. So I looked at people who owned them. Uh, a couple of interesting things. Uh, of the people who owned these devices, uh, about 80% only owned one, but that last 20% on average owned three, uh, meaning you've got a bunch of very dedicated AR and VR kinds of folks who are big fans of the technology and are trying a lot of these devices. Uh, so the overall average owned because of that group was actually one4 um So interesting to see you know how many different devices people actually
1: own wow and so and, and so how is it, how do you choose exactly where to put your focus for each of the for for each study whenever you start a study well
2: what i what I do is i, I look at the hot topics uh, that are out there um you know, and then I talk to my clients and I ask them about what sort of topics they're interested in uh and the way it works is i've done research studies for literally now decades and so i have a lot of experience in 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 constructing these things and so what i will do is i'll start out with sort of a uh a rough outline of, of what i believe are the important topics i'll do my own research in terms of determining what i think are important questions to ask to really dive into the details of it and then i'll send those surveys around to my clients um and ask for feedback. So I got a lot of feedback from the vendors wanting to know specific things and they'll have specific areas or questions they want or they might want me to tweak the wording of a particular answer or question. Uh, So I get the feedback from the client base uh, and then use that to refine the survey. Uh, Then I work with a professional survey house. I have several different ones that I work with Um, and we work on programming the survey and hosting it online. All my surveys are done online. and then gathering the data, and then generating reports. Um, there are tricks, though. The problem these days is uh, everybody and their brother's doing surveys. Uh, the methodology is not always that precise. And there's a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people who are what I'll call professional survey takers, for lack of a better word, <laughs> who do nothing all day but take. their head. It's true, I know you laugh, but it's a, it's a true point. So you gotta weed those people out because that's not who you want. You want just genuine people like, you know, who maybe every now and then take a survey, but can say something intelligent and actually know what's going on. So you have to play all kinds of tricks to get these people to uh, to weed out the people who aren't really paying attention. Uh, who sometimes there's a phrase called speeders, people who jump through, essentially kind of go one 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 one, you know, answer the first response to the question, and all kinds of different things you have to do to to, to weed that out to get quality data. um have learned. Again, from doing that for a long time, there's a lot of different tricks to do that. But so that's the process is, you know, again, it's kind of a long-winded answer. Sorry, but uh, work, you know, come up, do the research on my own, figure out the key issues, work with my client base to refine that, uh, get the survey uh, in partnership with a uh, company that I uh, use a subcontractor, um, get the results and then generate the reports.
1: And I know you mentioned that the focus of one of the studies was a, was about the workplace of the future. Yeah. Uh, can we talk a little bit about about that about some of the the big changes yeah, and differences or absolutely. what came out of that?
2: Yeah, a number of interesting things came from that study. Uh that one was done a little uh, just over a year ago and um I wanted to understand what kind of tools and where and how people work. So we've known for years that you know people don't just go into an office from 9 to 5 and work in one place, obviously.
0: But what I wanted
2: to do is kind of quantify exactly what that meant. How much were they working at home? How much were they working at a place like a WeWork or or, or work outside the environment? Um, What kind of tools were they using? How did they communicate? How much did they use email versus chat versus things like Slack? Um, uh, How were they sharing documents with with coworkers? How did they do that with people outside their company? a number of interesting things uh, that I was trying to look at. One of the big takeaways from that particular study uh, was the fact that people were planning to spend more time at home. You know, a lot of companies have been become much more flexible, um, and so when we looked at the amount of time, about uh, average amount of work time spent was about 43 hours per week. So, you know, not much different than your typical 40 hours. These were, of course, self-reported, but Uh, you know you had a a thousand people again so both medium-sized companies and large companies uh that responded to this particular study um and um what the only difference that changed frankly i asked some people where are you currently working and where do you expect to be working uh two years from now and most of the categories did not change and you know places like we work to be honest with you on an overall average basis were a tiny tiny fraction of the place but one noticeable change about a two-hour shift was less hours in the office and more hours at home to the point where people on average expected to spend one full day uh eight hours uh at home and that was very different uh you know well the previous uh where they were currently working was about six hours a week at home on average again nobody did exactly six hours but when you averaged all the people that's how it worked out and so there was clearly a shift working at home. And and of course, we've seen this and that's a pretty big jump because that implies, of course, the need to have tools to function at home. Uh, For businesses, that means things like VPNs and and other kinds of software to to ensure that you're securely connecting, um, getting access to the appropriate tools that you need, being able to to do uh, conference calls and video calls uh, from a home environment, needing the connectivity. There's a lot of interesting implications around that. So um, that was certainly interesting. Another interesting thing was that, you know, people like to say that email is dead. Well, got news for you. Definitely not the case, even with younger people. Uh, one of the things I like to do with all my studies is break it down into a number of splits, into demographics, things like age and gender. Um, and of course, the presumption that a lot of people had in this particular study was that younger people would, would not be using email very much. Instead, they, you know, IM and Slack and other uh tools like that and while they certainly are and and doing more so than than older workers um they still primarily used email when, when you when i asked people to break down all of your communications you know take that pie and split it uh, of a hundred percent into different percentages email was still the top thing even amongst 18 to 24 year olds um and certainly was a larger percentage as you know workers got older uh from the study so you know, it, it tells you that we are seeing some of these changes in the workplace, but a lot of these things take much longer to really uh, come to fruition than perhaps intuition and, and frankly, what, the, what you're in the press would suggest.
1: So for so for younger people in that study, does that mean that they consider email the base and then they just kind of add these other applications yeah, on I, top I, of...
2: Yeah, exactly. I think, in general, what I found from that study was email is the base for everybody. Um, And uh, it was even still the base for um, uh, younger people. And a part of this, of course, is because it it, you know, a lot of times in business, you're not communicating with people that you personally know, right? So I don't know somebody. I'm not necessarily going to have, you know, their phone number or or other contact information. Certainly much easier to get that these days than it used to be. But um, there's a certain formality, of course, to email. Um, that you have in, in, in a business environment, that's often the appropriate way to do it. Not always. Uh, of course, obviously, it depends on the industry, and it depends on a whole lot of different. Um, and there were differences. For example, uh, I made sure to ask about how do you communicate with coworkers versus people outside the company. Um, and obviously, with people outside of the company, there was much more email usage than internally, because internally, you can do phone calls, and you can do you know, IM and other uh, persistent chat tools like Slack and what have you. Um, but the other thing you have is there's interoperability concerns because not everybody uses the same messaging tools company to company. That's the other problem. Email, at least as a fallback, uh, as a default, is truly universal. So uh, that's the, the reality of the environment. It also depended on the industry they're in. I break, you know, had breakdowns by industry. Not surprisingly, in the tech industry. Uh, it was very different. But if you were in a more traditional industry, uh, you were in packaged food or, or whatever it had, you know, it was, um, then your usage of email obviously was also significantly higher. So those are also important things to be aware of as you look at you know the world around you.
1: So I can see where it would seem pretty clear that when you share the results of studies like this or surveys like this with your client base, that they probably make pretty – Pretty quick changes based on what they're seeing if they they seem like they're out well
2: whack. it's 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 hard for them to make big changes but I I certainly think they have and I know they have made changes in strategy and approach uh, the other thing you see is you know they'll use the data points as a reference in their own materials. so I was just on a call earlier this morning with a large PC vendor I can't say who because it's uh, it was NDA conversation but a big PC oh, vendor course. talking about uh, upcoming products um, and you know, one of the data points they referenced was from a study that I did, right? There were data points from other uh, companies as well, but it was just to kind of make a general point. In fact, it was happened to be from the workplace study uh, about some of these trends in the workplace and how therefore you have to adjust your tools based on this is the reality of what's going on out there. And that's how my research is used in some instances. They'll they'll use it for their own purpose. They might even use it in a press release or, or in a white paper or other Kinds of uh, of marketing materials. That's a very common use for market research data, whether it comes from from technologist research or or other firms like an IDC. Uh,
1: and and also, I would think in maybe crafting policy in some in Absolutely. some situations. Absolutely. I mean,
2: yeah, I, yeah. I mean, as companies you know figure this out, uh, in the case of the workplace study, yeah, understanding, hey, what what's the reality? I mean, that's an issue not for the product guys, for people in HR, and and figuring out what sort of policies we need to have. Uh, and what sort of flexibility we want. And, and we're hearing and seeing this more and more. I mean, younger people are, are sometimes picking their jobs and their company based on the technology and the policy. Not even, the, you know, in the old days, you kind of picked the job because, you know, it matched your skills and you liked the company. But how you judge the company may have been more on what you knew about it or what have you. But now some of that judgment about the company is, is from what sort of technology tools do they offer? What sort of policies do they have about work flexibility? Um, and uh, you know, speaking of that, I mean, one of the other interesting things from that study that reminded me, uh, one of the biggest issues and one of the reasons people wanted to work at home, it wasn't so much about the workplace, but it was uh, flexibility. It was the work time flexibility. People were more interested in having flexible time because you know you can't always work nine to five. Sometimes you have to take a break in the middle of the day to take care of errands or do certain things, especially if you have if you have young kids, for example, with a family, or you have other issues you have to deal with. Uh, the beauty of working at home is that maybe you can, you know, work, you put eight hours in, but it's not a straight eight hours. It's four hours, and then a break, and then two hours, and then a break, and then two hours more. And and that kind of fits the modern lifestyle and the, and the modern uh, way of working. And so that was another interesting takeaway uh, from that study.
1: And so what does the next couple of years look like for tech analysis? Like, do you already have your studies kind of Map yeah. Now. well
2: I, I mean I you know I, I don't as much I, I it's funny because I used to try and map things out um, and what I often found was you know the tech world changed so quickly that things I had planned a year in advance all of a sudden didn't seem quite as interesting or relevant so uh, I've become a little bit more flexible uh, so I don't know for sure exactly what I'm going to be doing I have an idea for the next couple but beyond that um, uh, there's a, a lot of what I try and do is stay on top of the very cutting edge trends because one of the one of the things I'm able to do, unlike a lot of the bigger firms, is react more quickly. Uh, the big tech uh, market research firms um, are, are very good at what they do, but they have to, you know, they're it's a much more structured environment. It's harder for them to react quickly. As a small company, I can react immediately, uh, you know, and and make big changes in terms of my research plans, and what have you. So. And that's worked out very well into my advantage because now I can cover a wide variety of different topics and and have intelligent commentary and and real data behind the things that I write or say or talk about in the press uh, to be able to to kind of guide the discussion of where the tech industry is going and and react to it at the same time. Um, It's a big, big tech world. And what's interesting now, of course, is that technology is influencing all aspects of our lives. It used to be, you know, tech. Products were focused on very specific areas, but tech now influences society and politics. And we've got discussions about privacy and ethics and all kinds of interesting areas that we never, ever, frankly, used to talk about in the tech business. And things like AI, artificial intelligence in particular, are driving new levels of conversation. So what I find interesting is that the discussions I have now have an impact well outside just uh, the tech business. Uh, into the general press and into, you know, society as a whole. So what's interesting for me to look forward to is to kind of see how these things play out. And um, you know, right now, for example, the tech business is, is facing some real pushback. It used to be sort of the darling of of the business world and a lot of people used to love the tech business. Now not so much. Um there's some real pushback and it's gonna be interesting to see how that evolves and so Watching that and, and evolving with that, and creating the right kind of research to provide guidance for companies, is, uh, keeps my job interesting and exciting. And that's what's going to be—I'm going to
1: be doing for the next several years. Do you, do you think that that tech pushback might just be part of part of the cycle, like just cost of doing business, or something specific no, it's, that's causing I, this it? This
2: is different. I mean, I've been—I've been watching the tech business for a long time, and before I got into computer tech, I was in music tech, and um, you know for a very long time, literally until the last 12 months. It's all been about the technology and and the products and and all the cool things you can do and the fun stuff. And now there are really deep social implications to technology and that's never happened before. And and that's not gonna go away. So no, it's not part of the cycle, it's just a new state. We've moved from the infancy of of technology to uh, a much more adolescent phase, shall we say. And and with adolescence comes all the problems of of uh, of human adolescence. Um, and uh, so we're going to have some challenging and interesting times, I think, for the next several decades to come, likely.
1: And, and what's the best way for our, our listeners to touch base with Technalysis and with you?
2: Sure. Uh, the best way is through my website. Everything that I do uh, is on my website. It's Technalysis Research. It's a little tricky to spell. It's T-E-C-H. N is a Nancy A L Y S I S Research dot com. It's like tech analysis, but no A in the middle, and one word. So techanalysisresearch.com. dot com. All my writings, my podcasts, uh, highlights from all my research studies, press releases, everything you'd want to find out about technalysis uh, is available right there. technalysisresearch.com.
1: dot com. Oh well, well, definitely want to thank you, Bob, for coming in and giving us all this uh, great insight, especially since you you kind of have a unique vantage point, considering you get to cover all these different cool areas and kind of stay on the bleeding edge there, you know, as opposed to just being yep. in one space.
2: Well, thanks know? very much, Alan. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: Coming to Dallas, Texas, September 14th, 15th, and 16th, 2018, the Blockchain and Future Check Expo. This is gonna be a gigantic conference of over 5,000 people. We're gonna be talking about Blockchain and its applications, We're going to be talking about quantum computing, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence and several other future technologies that are poised to and actually changing our lives as we speak. Here's why you should attend. As you may know, early adopters are the ones that investigated and profited from things like the gold rush in the 1800s, from the dot-com boom in the 1990s, from the internet boom in 2005, from the smartphone explosion in 2007 from the real estate boom that ended in 2008, and of course, from the Bitcoin boom that started in 2012. Early adopters act now. They don't wait till later. They go out west first in their covered wagons. They find the biggest gold nuggets. If you consider yourself an early adopter, and you want to find the biggest nuggets, then you owe it to yourself to attend this upcoming conference. Blockchain is going to affect how we control and store our medical data, how we send money around the world, how we bank, and more but artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and cybersecurity will play a pivotal role in our lives as well. And that's why our next event, September 14th to the 16th at the Dallas Convention Center, is going to have not only 5,000-plus attendees, but will showcase blockchain, AI, cybersecurity, quantum computing, and more. You want to get in on the coming gold rush of future tech, and opportunity as an early adopter. Don't be left out. To register, go to bftexpo.com. virtual reality, and more.